the subject that I'm going to cover today is one that in our contemporary era has functioned and grown best by avoiding easy definitions or more perhaps more importantly actively sought to muddy the waters so that those who wish to those who are in the positions to engage with it correct it com combat it even are forced into an asymmetrical situation where they are not only engaging in the vi uh, the violence of warfare but its moral obligations and that is going to be set by a backdrop of or that is going to be the the, the context by which we talk about what warfare looks like in the coming eras and how it is actually not something that is entirely all that new. Uh, in fact, it's been around for a while. So I'm going to start by reading from uh, Malcolm Nance's book, They Want to Kill Americans. From page 31, insurgencies often occur when internal political disagreements between two or more established parties move off the debate floor and into the streets. Political disagreements have easily become hostile words that formed revolutions and ended up toppling democracies. Many such disagreements result in party loyalists then establishing paramilitary forces. These groups take on a weakened or take on weakened police or military forces. So that's from page 31. And later on page 50, Malcolm Nance says this. And for context, when he refers to Titus, he's referring to this sort of uh, the, this idea that he has called the, tide, the Trump insurgency of the United States. Many, let's see, most militant armed members of Titus take on an eliminationist, eliminationist view towards liberal values most Americans see as mainstream. These extremists believe that direct defiance, often with violence or the threat of violence, will halt the corruption of the government. Many tightest extremists favor the elimination, arrest, or execution of political enemies. Political groups and individuals, particularly the ju judicial branches, judges, and staffs, are often threatened when unfavorable results are enshrined into law. For example, in 2022, when the, right, when the Supreme Court upheld President Obama's Affordable Care Act, the right-wing extremists threatened the lives of Chief Justice John Roberts, a conservative, as well as the liberal justices. The political fringe of the party gives tacit approval and, on occasion, active support to these extremists. For example, in April 2018, one Facebook user wrote about Hillary Clinton and the liberals. Now do we get to hang them? Major uh, Mar Marjorie Taylor Greene, yeah, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who was later elected to Congress from Georgia, replied using phrases from the QAnon cult that threatened a genocide of all liberals. Stages being set. Players are being put into place. We must remain patient. This must be done perfectly or liberal, liberal judges will let them off. Um, alrighty. So um, I'll read on a little bit further. Uh, moving on. Titus has openly supported acts of terrorism and lionized their perpetrators. 17-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse, who shot to death two liberal protesters in Kenosha, Wisconsin, became the symbol of an armed youth against progressive values. Patches and t-shirts with his image parading an AR-15 rifle are sold around the nation. The shock of these images as propaganda allow terror sympathizers and extremist media channels to evangelize their worldview before other Americans and help shame fence-sitters. The terrorist element of, the Titus, of Titus has already used propaganda by deed 
where their deadly acts are designed to incite further violence and stir the imagination of those who are not yet convinced of the effect efficaciousness the effect efficacy of terror efficacy geez the efficacy of terror each act is designed to weaken the resolve of the public and make them feel the government cannot protect him within the social media infosphere of the extreme right wing particularly on reddit parlor gab and telegram chat rooms the glorification of murdering liberals is commonplace so what are, what Malcolm Nance is talking about here and what he's presenting in his idea of this Titus, this Trump insurgency of the United States, is that there is, in his maybe more honest or forthright explanations, a fringe of the conservative party which seeks to uh, use violence as a form of insurgency and let's even call it domestic terrorism to incite fear in the population in order to break their will and trust of our operating system that be another example of what another way that this looks like is that he's saying we're seeing this bifurcation in the this is how i'm interpreting it of course there's there's we're seeing this bifurcation in the united states between uh liberal and conservative and then there are, is a fringe on the conservative that is willing to use violence to break the will of the population making them not trust the government itself and this of course is being written on the heels of 2020 where we saw a summer of love and those sort of events which included the burning of 150 buildings in minneapolis alone just on the first night of the riots uh, which went on for two years but what i'm but the the instead of just instead of like going on uh a, di a diatribe to just merely discredit Malcolm Nance, which I think he tends to actually do on his own well. Um, I want to bring up this, this part here. So this is from page five of A History of Warfare by John Keegan. Uh, War, as the continuation of policy, was the form Clausewitz chose to express the compromise for which the states he knew and, and had settled. To It accorded respect... It accorded respect to their prevailing ethics of absolute sovereignty, ordered diplomacy, and legally binding treaties, while making allowance for the overriding principle of state interest. If it did not admit the ideal of pacifism, which the Prussian philosopher Kant was only just translating from the religious to the political sphere, it certainly distinguished sharply between the lawful bearer of arms and the rebel, the freebooter, and the brigand. It presupposed a high level of military discipline and an awesome degree of obedience by subordinates to their lawful superiors. It expected that war would take certain narrowly defined forms, siege, pitched battle, skirmish, raid, reconnaissance, patrol, and outpost duties, each of which had its own recognized conventions. It assumed that wars had a beginning and an end. What it made no allowance for at all was war without beginning or end the endemic warfare of non-state, even pre-state peoples, in which there was no distinction between lawful and unlawful bearers of arms. Since all males were warriors, a form of warfare which has prevailed during long periods of human history and which, 
at the margins, still encroached on the life of civilized states and was, indeed, turned to their use through the common practice of recruiting and pra its practitioners as irregular light cavalry and infantrymen from the unlawful and uncivilized means by which these irregular warriors rewarded themselves on campaign and from their barbaric methods of fighting, the officers of the civilized states averted their gaze. Yet without the, seri the, the services they offered, the overdrilled armies which, in which Clausewitz and his kin had been raised would scarcely have been able to keep the field. All regular armies, even the armies of the French Revolution, recruited irregulars to patrol, reconnoiter, and skirmish for them during the 18th century in the expansion of such forces, Cossacks, hunters, highlanders, borderers, and hussars had been one of the most noted contemporary military developments. Over their habits of loot, pillage, rape, murder, kidnap, and extortion, or extortion and systematic vandalism, their civilized employers chose to draw a veil. So what Keegan, what Keegan is talking about, what Keegan talks about in this early section uh, in his book, the, A History of Warfare, is that most of how we are is that this perception of war being very Clausewitzian or very much so in a ordered kind of beginning and end. There is a beginning of war. We declare war. We engage in war. We defeat your generals and then we end the war um, doesn't exactly keep ties or doesn't exactly keep up with history. It doesn't really keep up with the way that what we are calling war has really been fought over time. And I bring these two books up separately, particularly to look at how a character like Malcolm Nance would determine an insurgency um, within a political opponent, and then how what we're recognizing is that he is talking, or what, we're, what he's talking about is a guerrilla-style or even insurgency-style conflict coming from the, let's say, the Trump camp and being waged against the American people. In other words, the gray area of war is where uh, you would expect counterinsurgency to be its his his strong suit. But then, if you go on to read more of Malcolm Nance's book, you continue to find that his distinction between insurgent and let's just call it regular Republican or regular person um, is not even unclear. It's divisive. If uh, if if Trump or if if it's it's just it's a rather divisive and destructive de de definition, and well, this is where I've made my accusation in the past that despite claiming to be an expert in insurgency in his writing, Nance goes off right quickly to inform the world that if he is an expert, he is deliberately not practicing that which he is an expert in, which is sorting out between combatants and non-combatants, insurgents, and average citizens. The, uh, the explanation on Kyle Rittenhouse that he had made is a pretty clear-cut example where giving counterfactual or, or, or a personal narrative as to what goes on, Nance goes on to continue in various examples to explain or reiterate stories in ways that turned out not to be the way that they had been, they played out, whether it's Rittenhouse himself or the uh, the Governor Whitmer plot, um, even after the, let's just say, the facts of the case had been made known to the public, he retained his position that they happened in the way according to his narrative. 
And this is where the what, what some people are referring to as the fifth generation of warfare tends to take place. Is it's not just information. It's not just eco economic. It's not just media and propaganda. What we're dealing with is we're dealing with a, a, a conjunction of two colliding events. And one of them is decent, a return to decentralization, as we have seen the failure of a centralized economy continue to cause mass starvation and destruction across the earth. And in conjunction with that, the failures of multiculturalism try, claiming to be able to create world peace, but then only being able to do so by the sword, and then that therefore kind of invalidates its own position. And then finally, this issue of how insurgency is not necessarily just returning but it's it's a it's an old 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 issue maybe not even an issue it's an old thing it's an old component of human conflict so getting into it and getting into a little bit deeper warfare perhaps e or even in von clausewitz's time where the which was which could be seen as sort of the height of uh uniformed war i mean this is literally people are literally wearing uniforms in red and blue and gold with plumes and and and, and white straps and decorative components this era of warfare even in that time when you had the cleanest lines for what was a combatant and what was not a combatant, you saw the, you saw the use of irregulars, people who didn't necessarily wear a uniform. They didn't fight by the rules of engagement. They didn't uh, fight against each other in the proper gentlemanly way. This, 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 challenge, this, this presented a challenge to von Clausewitz, who saw as a distinction between real war and true war being Real war was the way that wars were fought, and true war could have been the ways that war should have been fought. And maybe true war was limited to those things like raid, reconnaissance, um, you know, logistic supply chains, and so on and so forth. Whereas true war was burning villages and looting and pillaging. <clears throat> and so, even though uh, armies that proclaimed some sort of noble, noble heritage and noble position those same generals and officers and armies and governments would also employ saboteurs and uh, maybe what you might call freedom fighters in our global era that we see, at least in our sort of pseudo-political conversation. We see this talked about like uh, regime, cha regime change, or we even see it happening quite a bit in the world of special operations. And that is that not everything is going to be as broadcasted with exceptions. So insurgency itself, insurgency is kind of a difficult subject to handle, but at the same time, it's only difficult because it thrives in an environment that seeks to make identification as difficult as possible at all times. The insurgent wants the population to, the only, the, the insurgent wants the population to identify the bad actions of the opposition not the intentions or the identity of the insurgent itself. Part of the goal of an insurgent is to point out all of the failures and weaknesses of a society, but then there's a hidden hook, a twisted dark side to it, which is that not only is there the attempt to change the world, change people's perspective, but it's very often a tool to replace it. 
You can think of insurgency and you can think of even some ideologies as something wielded by a power to cut down a tree so that the wood may be harvested and something else built in its place. Imagine, for example, you have a tower, you have a building, and in that tower, that tower is a representation of a society, and it has its values and it has its cultures. The purpose of an insurgency, an insurgency and its use is a fire, and the fire never builds. An insurgency cuts down, it destroys, it breaks the will of the people. It, it takes their hopes and dreams for the future, whether it's the American dream or their national pride, and it turns it against them. And then, once it has once it has establishedly, once it has burned out enough of the foundation, the insurgency is shoved aside, maybe even told to face the wall, and a new regime comes in. A new power structure is replaced. A new or is brought in. A new tower is built in its stead. Quite literally, it is to take a structure. The if you take a if you think of a structure as a government, insurgency is just fire. It burns it down, but it doesn't replace it. This is why you get those sort of passionate revolutionaries that uh, wear the Fidel Castro T-shirts or people who say things like, Commun "Real communism has never been tried." Uh, what they what they're what the, what they end what they end up finding out is that they are the fire that's used to burn down a structure so that something else will replace it. Throughout human history, we've seen empires rise and fall, countries, kingdoms, and so forth rise, collapse, and be replaced. Sometimes that happens naturally because of just internalized corruption, and sometimes it happens externally. But an insurgency fits in the gray area between those two spaces. And what we've seen in gun culture lately, and what we've seen in our communities, is that we've seen a desire for people to have a greater connection to their own community, a greater connection to the world around them. They don't want to be so focused on this centralized worldview. But that comes with consequences. It comes with responsibilities. In... And this is where I'm going to have to go continue down, you know, for, for I guess for this one's being released on a Friday. The it's not necessarily a stream of consciousness, but I want to pull a little bit away from uh, the reading of these different materials and, and not necessarily make a prediction, but talk about what I think is going on in this environment, what I think is going on in America and in the West, and what's going on as a culture and as a community. So I do, first of all, I don't believe that America was ever monolithic. I don't believe that America was ever a fully united central pillar of values and core ideologies. I think it's always been a little bit of a mix. There have certainly been uh, commonly accepted and commonly held worldviews, and that might have might be, or that very well can be exactly what something that Nietzsche would have been referencing with the death of God, is that while the people in America or the American population had a series of generally similar worldviews, they were at best cousins. Uh, it wasn't a monolithic, let's just say lockstep citizenry. I mean, you had to see compromises made even to achieve the American Revolution. You had to see compromises made even to see things like uh, well, you could call the Civil War one of the greatest compromises is the, the South had to capitulate to the North's will uh, through violence. 
I mean, a compromise is probably putting it too lightly. But what I think is going on in the world and what I think is that what we are observing and I, and I get to use the context of gun culture is that we as a society are witnessing the, um, the end of that big era of formalized, easy to define warfare. Now, some people might call it the collapse of Western civilization, but some, but that phrase in another term is also decentralization. Remember to the empire decentralization looks like collapse um and decent to the empire decentralization looks like collapse it looks like a falling apart because it into them it really is or to the imperial imperialist it really is uh, because you're losing power over the average man they no longer are concerned with your will or your wants or your direction or whatever and decentralization is maybe the non-violent is a, is a non-violent protest against the authority of, of a centralized government, whereas insurgency is a violent, um, oftentimes politically divisive and de destructive uh, use of force that um, seeks to undermine the population. It's not only just a force, it's a combination of propaganda and force. But what, you, what, what I think is going on here is I think what we are realizing, what the West is realizing is that the... For a very long time, we have been sheltered from the reality of violence, conflict, and political conflict in the United States. To be clear, um, our our two in recent history, our our two greatest examples of political violence taking place in the United States are going to be things like the Rodney King riots or the um, the uh, George Floyd twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one riots. Like those are really big examples. And there have been other cases of it, but they're oftentimes very sporadic, and they're very, um, they're they're not, they're not even compartmentalized. They're beyond compartmentalized. A third option that you might want to include is that the, the way that the American justice system has responded to whatever took place on January sixth, uh, to hold people without without trial for two years in a cell, doesn't really look like a very. It does look like a use of political or a force for political means. But what we have a what we have an issue here, and what I think is going on, and what I think is going on in this culture, in this in this in this world, is that we're realizing that the like as as the as the threat croaches in, we are starting we are experiencing the fringes. We are experiencing the fringes, not even in like a territorial sense, but in an ideological sense. Um, Malcolm Nance is a good example of this because he aligns with the ideology of the left, which believes in and apparently supports um, just by the writing this idea of preemptive self-defense is that if i can determine that you're a bad guy um then i can prescribe if i can prescribe intent on you that you're going to go do something bad then i have a right to defend myself against the bad you're going to do but then he goes on so far that this this wraps up in this ideology of identifying it as something characteristic of people for example all conservatives are potential domestic terrorists would be an example, a hyper a hyperbolic example. Well, not even too hyperbolic, to be honest. Example of this mentality. A preemptive self-defense declares that because you because you remind me of something that I think of as a fascist, then you, someday you are going to do a fascism and you're going to use violence against my peoples. And so uh, I am then obligated morally to engage in pre preemptive self-defense to be violent against you to stop you from doing it. 
in a military strategic standpoint, this makes sense. If I know that you're going to launch a missile from this base, I'm going to hit that base with a rocket. If I know that you're going to attack me from the west flank, I am going to not only bolster that west flank, but I might counter you as soon as you leave the wire and attack you from your eastern flank because you've already left the wire. If you're going to, if I know that tomorrow you're going to rob me with a handgun, you're going to come to my house and you're going to rob me, then maybe today I'm going to go find you and stop you from doing that. These are all morally ethical, these are all moral and ethical questions that sort of, they, 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 they borderline uh, concerns with omniscience. Like, do you really know what's going on tomorrow? And do we really know? And then what happens when you start arming that political ideology? As in, what happens when we arm the word terrorist to attack our political enemies? Which we've seen happen, you know, in the United States, and the and what this means for the average citizen, what this means for the citizen who's at home, um, and who is, might be a member of gun culture or might be a member of the United States, is that suddenly everyone is suspect because it's no longer uniformed enemies. What happens when you break down the barriers of human culture and you get into this problem where there are no easy answers? When there is no easy way to define whether or not a person is a part of an insurgency or not, you get either the radical fervor of somebody like Malcolm Nance, who advocates for the use of force against his political opponents um, by condensing them into what he calls Titus, or you run into the problem that even von Clausewitz dealt, dealt with, is that when you're dealing with formal forces in, potentially engaging each other in conflict, you're going to get irregulars at the fringes. And those irregulars are going to be vital to the success of each military. And one of the challenges of being an irregular is you might actually be considered politically disposable by your keepers. And then this has been exacerbated and extended into cell-based warfare or cell-based insurgency and cell-based terrorism, where if I have under my employ, let's just say I have got 10 groups under my employment. Um, and employment is just a loose reference, but none of them really know each other. And then none of them really know who I am, but I'm still able to give orders or still pass out directions. And one of them gets compromised. The other nine are just fine. And so if I am, let's say I am a, uh, I am a representation of a government or an army and I am marching westward for whatever reason, but I've got all these little insurgency groups in the, in the mix and they're out sabotaging things, but they don't know of each other's existence. If one of them, or they don't have any real genuine information about each other's, who, who consists of them or what's going on, then I can use those to weaken or cripple an opposing force before I even have to engage in battle. And, and if they are compromised, I can deny that they're even my people. Uh, think of this, if you want to see this in the modern era, look at the, how, the way that Antifa operates in the United States. When it's convenient, certain political forces will claim them as their allies. But if one goes too far, we say, oh, that's just that person. It's just, it's their, it's that cell. Um, they've gone too far. And, and so that doesn't, that has happened a bit. We've seen it happen a couple times. Um, but really what it is is that I get to claim the fruit of their actions without having to bear the responsibility of what they do. And for the average citizen in the world, it can become very, for not even the average citizen, for the citizen, the armed citizen, the prepared citizen, the individual, whoever we're talking to, let's just say for Americans as a whole, this creates a scenario where it's difficult to figure out who is who. 
is the is your neighbor with the Trump sign in his flag or the Trump flag that flies from his house? Is he a member of Titus? Is your other neighbor with a Black Lives Matter sign in his front yard? Is that person a member of Antifa or whatever? Is he a part of the Nation of Islam, which has motivated individuals to strap bombs to their chest or join ISIS? Like what, what's going on here? The issue that comes to play and the issue that comes to play for us as individuals is that as we see decentralization takes place, it lands further and further on our own shoulders to make moral evaluations of those we are surrounded by. And if we don't, we will pay the consequence for it, as we have already. The issue that I see being presented here, and as I go on for this continued recording the issue that i see go, that we're looking at is that warfare at one time in in human history even if it was a short window looked like a very formal idea it had a beginning it had an end it had armies and that was it and yet as we read into it we realize that's not exactly how it played out there were the fringes of that and and then if you translate that to our day while there may be armies the fringes are much broader and they're much more invasive. The fringes do not necessarily look like partisans hiding in the woodland getting ready to sabotage your grain for next spring. It might very well look like a population within your city who are maybe not so much like MK Ultra activated to do a certain thing, but, but can be quickly incited to uh, disrupt the normal operation of that city. Think that think of it this way: is if you've built a um, you've built a population, you have a population within a like an activist community within within a city, right? So you've got we'll use um, we'll use Minneapolis as an example, but let's just say you've got a very strong activist presence in this city that are they're extremely passionate about climate change, right? So they're very very passionate about climate change. They're they're concerned about it. Their concern is genuine. Whether or not it's mis, uh, uh, poorly informed is not the point. The issue is that they're they're com they're compassionate. They're dedicated to this thing. And so then by motivation, they're inspired to host a rally um, next Thursday. And they're going to host that rally uh, on the street in off of 35 on the 35W bridge because they want to protest this or that. Right now, what they've done, if that pro as that protest takes place on the 35W bridge in Minneapolis, you've effectively cut about half of the uh, uh, the ability for people within that city to move around. Minneapolis is a city built on a river, and that river has multiple bridges over it. And one of the most prominent bridges is the 35W bridge, and now a group of activists maybe it's as little as 20 or as many as 200 or maybe even a thousand have shown up motivated to protest climate change or, or whatever on that bridge essentially cutting off half of the movement of that city because now one of the most important thoroughfares to get from north to south or across that river is blocked and while that chaos is happening over here what can you get done over there? Maybe you burn a building, demolish a structure, or you institute some sort of legal claim, or you change the way that people, uh, zoning laws, I don't know, you can pick a thing. This is an example of what it might look like, but what we're really running it, but we, but we, where we, what we saw happen in 2020 was how the grievances of people, legitimate or otherwise, 
were weaponized in order to create a violent overthrow of the popu of the city itself exchanging any form that might have existed or eradicating any form of say law and order or or whatever from the population for uh, radically far left ideological people within the city council it's not really an accusation it's just a description and what you saw then is how did they achieve that well they didn't necessarily they didn't necessarily get the votes in the very simple way it wasn't simply about voting it was about changing the perspective of the people and then from there you know those different peoples made different structures and made different uh things happen and they burned down buildings and they protested this and that and whatever they they, they, they defunded the police and two years later <clears throat> kamala harris who funded that process with through you know her whatever her like bailing out system uh is now the vice president and has been sort of capped with the honor of building up a police force to specifically handle gun violence and while that's happening you're seeing a political aperture arrive which are you seeing a political aperture activate within a community within the media which specifically highlights cases of violence where a certain tool which has been sort of politically attached to a certain population think of it this way right um now so the woman so the the vice president who was responsible for some of the burning of minnesota because of uh through funding is now the vice president and she is now in charge of the uh, Office of Gun Violence Prevention, which has mixed levels of uh, authority what, whatever, whatsoever. But then she is then, th in conjunction with that, you have an effort to uh, curb gun violence. But it's not just any gun violence. It's a specific type of gun violence, particularly gun violence with an AR-15. And when any time that is displayed, you get a series of images that show republicans wearing an ar-15 as a badge on their jacket so what you're seeing is a media attack through a method of insurgency using political and social warfare to identify and attribute a political enemy as being a certain thing by what they wear and then you get someone like malcolm nance to call an insurgency and boom you've got an entire military or law enforcement agency specifically designed to prosecute your political opponents and there we do it we've accomplished a tyranny that's something that it could look like it's a bit of a hypothetical what i think is a little bit what i think what i'm what i'm talking about being closer to home for us is that as war loses its formality and as the methods of warfare get much much more muddy and as we claim to hold values like decentralization, then the responsibility falls on our shoulders to discern better and with greater accuracy who is with us and who is against us. What are the terms and conditions by which we understand and discern whether or not a person is engaging in this form of, let's call it domestic terrorism or insurgency, and what is it that allows us to stay outside of it? In other words, the 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 gray area the fringes of warfare are on our doorstep and they will continue to be on our doorstep and they will be fought by perhaps a minority of us but that is something that we're going to change here and that's something we're going to continue to talk about the the tool that we are going that you have to be faced with is whenever you're evaluating a situ situation separate 
for your from your separate for yourself what are the three events that have taken place and then what are the motivations because the problem is and this is where conspiracy theory takes hold and this is where uh, we set ourselves up for failure is that when we conflate the two Malcolm Nance does this excellently in his book, We They Want to Kill Americans, because he either proves unwilling or incapable of discerning between actions and intents. The in, He ascribes intent to his political enemy, thus advocating for action against them without really qualifying that intent. And that is where this, the hard part stands. And I imagine there is there was something in there about maybe um, what do you call it? Libel. You know, he would he would he'd he'd have to be he'd have to suffer the consequences of his writing, uh, or maybe it's his reputation is such that he just says things to say things, and then you know that's just kind of what happens. But the tool is, and the important tool at hand is to you start by separating what are the event the facts of an event, or what is what is what are things that have happened, funny moving people saying things, and then what are the intents, and how can you verify the intent? So you you have to discern individual people. We do not believe in collective punishment, not in that way. You have to discern individual people and say, well, this person was responsible for this action. Why? Because they chose to pull the lever crunk. And it's like, well, they pulled the lever. Why did they pull the lever is another question entirely. And the hard choice for us as individuals is to understand the intent. Who is Who intends to be a part of your group? Why do they want to be there? Why are we participating in what we do? And to solve the intent, or to ask, answer the questions of the intents of individuals, we must be careful not to prescribe those intents, but to describe those intents. Not to say, well, you're this, therefore that, but rather, I have observed these things in you, they appear to be consistent, this is what, you're, this is what your intent appears to be. And that's what it looks like. That's what it looks like in this day and age. It's not an easy answer. Like you want, like if 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 gun culture in our community wants some sort of easy answer to what's going on before us, you're not going to find one. You're not going to find some sort of way out. But you aren't going to solve it either by engaging in the likes of Malcolm Nance. If you're going to look at warfare seriously, and you're going to look at the way that this culture and this community and this world has going to continue on, you have to come to terms that you are burdened with a great responsibility, a moral responsibility, which supersedes any legal responsibility, to understand the intents and actions. You must understand justice, not social justice, not economic justice or reproductive justice or any of that garbage, because all of that is made up fairy tale words intended to subvert your ability and to evaluate honest, true information about what's going on. Justice is justice. Cut it out. And so those who are intent on injecting that into your community need to be discerned between people who are insurgents and those who are the prey of insurgents. And if they are the prior, they are insurgents, cast them out. And if they are the, the, the latter, if they are just the prey of insurgents, well, they will be probably cast out too. Not to be crazy about it, but like, if they're, that there's not a lot you can do there. I mean, the problem with defending people is you have to defend them from people. So if we're going to make it out of this, and if we're going to continue as a gun culture, then here's your answer. Become discerning. Become patient. Exercise these things. In, the, in philosophy, you want it to be some sort of cut and clean distinction, but the answer is that those who engage in insurgency are intentionally engaging in the arenas that are the most difficult to define. If a person is causing distress in an area, is it malicious or is it accidental? And at what point does it not matter? So 
Yep, that's it. I wish it was an easy answer. I wish you could just have some sort of quick conclusion. But the tool that we are going to be forced to, dis- to to work with is the ability to discern between peoples. Uh, is there intent to do good or is there intent to do bad? And that happens on the individual basis. So if this has been useful, if you have enjoyed this conversation, if you want to engage more in the subject, if you want to dig deeper into the field of insurgency, if you want to jump into the philosophy of violence and how we understand these things within our culture, you can support us for as little as $5 a month at theredactedculture.locals.com. There you can also join in the conversation and get sneak peek stuff. Like we're going to do, I'm doing some long form reviews on the M110 by Palmetto State Armory. And then uh, that in conjunction with the SR25. I have them in this office, but they're too far away for me to grab right now. So you'll, you'll see more about them in the future. But yeah, first look is coming up soon, and we thank you for your time. If you want to support the show in another way, you can head over to redactedllc.com. That's where you can find our shop. Uh, we got more stuff popping up there regularly. But remember, remember, it's not easy. You want an easy if you want an easy answer and you want a quick a, a quick centralized answer, then you're not on the you're not dealing with decentralization. Decentralization places responsibility on the individual, and that is what if you want freedom. You have to be responsible. So, with that being the case, go forth and conquer. I think the girls with their nails done.